and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by my lovely co-host, Medea Ocher. Hi, Dea. Hi, Eric. I think you look lovely today, too. Oh. Oh. Today, we have an exciting conversation between the lovely Medea Ocher and a yell at Waldman at Scripps College. Can you tell us a little bit about it? I was asked to have a public conversation with Ayelet at Scripps. This was a few months ago that we recorded this. It was around the subject of her most recent book, which is called A Really Good Day, which is about her experience microdosing LSD. It's essentially a treatment for various kinds of both physical and emotional hurts that she's had, mental so it's therapeutic rather than therapeutic, recreational. Correct. Okay. And so we had this conversation about how she decided to start microdosing. The book is also a history of the way in which drugs become illegal. Ayelet was herself a lawyer. She taught mm. a class at Berkeley on drug law. And so she's also very well versed in the ways in which certain drugs are stigmatized in the culture then rendered illegal and then essentially blocked off from any kind of research in terms of their therapeutic value. Right. And so the book is really a combination of her personal experience microdosing, history of the illegality of various substances, and a diary of how her mood and how her physical being changed within the, the month that she was microdosing. All right. That sounds great. Okay. We'll pick up at the top of our conversation with Ayelet Waldman at Scripps College. Let's get to it. Let's do it. Well, Ayelet. Hello. Hello. So I wanted to start with talking about your most recent book. Okay. Which is called A Really Good Day. It is. And one of the things, well, let's start with the basics. What is microdosing? <laughs> what is microdosing? So microdosing is specifically the kind of microdosing I was doing, which is microdosing of psychedelic drugs. Microdosing is taking a small dose, in my case, a one-tenth dose of a psychedelic, in my case, LSD, a dose that is subperceptual, meaning that you don't have any perceptual effects. You don't trip, you don't hallucinate, you don't have any auditory hallucinations. But the idea behind microdosing is that you experience benefits that are not perceptual. Benefits that in my case included enhanced mood and enhanced productivity. So something I was wondering is, well, you were a federal public defender. Yes. You are very familiar with drug laws. Oh, I'm so paranoid. Nobody's <laughs> as paranoid. Nobody is as up. paranoid as a federal public defender because you spend your career watching the weight of the federal government be arrayed against your poor, misbegotten client. And the sentences are so draconian, it's, you, know, you have this constant feeling of paranoia and anxiety. There's actually a scene in the book where you weep in the courtroom because of yeah. a particular sentencing that's happening. Yeah, that, should I tell a little bit about that case? Sure, yeah. So this, just so you understand the background with which I decided to embark on a life of crime. I was working as a federal public defender in Santa Ana, and then I moved up to Los Angeles. And Santa Ana's in Orange County. And my client was an undocumented immigrant 
who had experienced developmental delays. He had limited intellectual capacity. His IQ measured out at around, for whatever that's worth, at around 75 to 80. And the government had charged him with a 20-year mandatory minimum crime for carrying, he was emptying a car or a truck into a car. He was carrying a box of methamphetamine, and the quantity of methamphetamine had been dictated by the confidential informant in the case, and it was enough to trigger a 10-year mandatory minimum and a 20-year sentence. So the case was ludicrous. The confidential informant was no joke, had escaped from prison where he had been put. It was a psychiatric facility, a criminal psychiatric facility, and he'd been put there after being found not guilty by reason of insanity for the attempted murder of his wife. He'd escaped from the lockdown facility. He had been working for the CIA. I'm not lying in Latin America, smuggling cocaine for the CIA. We can talk about that too as part of their cocaine smuggling operation. And then went on to be convicted of perjury. He was the worst of the worst of the worst, this guy. And my client was this Schlemiel. Do you know what that means? Am I in a Goyish institution? This like Jews. Turn to your like turn to your right and left schlub, and just define you know? it. He's like uh, he was just he was not competent. The night before trial, I got a call from the prosecutor saying, "Hey, what would you have settled this case for, low these many months ago when we first started?" And I said, "Oh, I never would have settled it for anything less than two telephone counts." And telephone counts are using a telephone way back when, in the commission of a crime. They each carry, a phone count carries a sentence of four years. So it would have been an eight year as opposed to a 20 year sentence. And the prosecutor said to me, okay, well, if you plead right now, tonight, he can have those eight years. It was a very difficult decision because I thought that there was at least a chance that I was going to get him acquitted. But if I failed, he was gonna to go to jail for 20 years. And it fundamentally came down to the idea that eight years you have a life, 20 years you really don't. I wasn't whole with that decision. I was a young attorney and I thought that maybe I was making the decision because I was not confident in my abilities. I didn't think Johnny Cochran would make that decision. But in the end, my client just did what I told him, which was to plead guilty. And in a guilty plea in federal court, and in most courts you have to do what's called a plea colloquy if you're a lawyer, where you tell the court, the court asks you, have you represented this client to the best of your ability? Are you confident that the plea is in his best interest? And I did all that and I started to cry because, and my client was comforting me, which was so terrible. I went to my office afterwards and my boss, this sexist monster who proceeded to try to fire me when I got pregnant, which is against the law. We can talk about that later too. He yelled at me for crying and then I went out into the parking lot and I was walking in the dark to my car and this black car pulls up beside me and the window lowers and it's the judge. And I'm like, oh great, now the judge is gonna ream me for crying too. And the judge said, Ms. Waldman? I said, yes, judge. And she said, I just want you to know, there are some things that are worth crying about. And then the window went up and it rolled away. And that's when I realized that she wasn't any happier with her role in this corrupt system than I was. It's such a beautiful story, particularly because of that sort of miraculous appearance of a judge who says exactly the right thing to you at the right, right. time, right? right? Which never happens. You cry and then you go home and you're just sad and you force yourself to go to sleep if you can and you move on with your life. But here's really, a person who actually had something to say. And you know, it was really interesting for me because it provided, I mean, she was a judge who always gave the minimum, you know, the sentencing guideline sentence. She did not divert from the sentence very frequently. 
And so she seemed like a fairly strict judge. Not, I mean, there were some terrible judges on the Central District of California, which is a Los Angeles area court, just, you know, really aggressive, really brutal judges. And she was not one of those, but neither was she a, you know, flaming liberal who would constantly give lower sentences than the sentencing guidelines required. But it made me realize, like, oh, this criminal justice system right now, this system of mass incarceration, this system of the war on drugs, this is, we all know this is terrible. It's not just us public defenders and our clients who believe this is terrible. We all know that it's terrible. And the truth is, even those prosecutors viciously prosecuting, they know it's terrible too. And that was the context in which I, I ended up leaving the public defender's office and I taught for about seven years at Bolt Hall, as it was then called, at UC Berkeley, the School of Law. I created a seminar, as you heard, called The Legal and Social Implications of the War on Drugs. And that's when I really learned a lot about drug policy and drug policy reform. And that's when, right after it was after that, that I decided, oh, I think I'll start to break the law and take a lot of LSD, or a tiny little bit of LSD. <laughs> Very small amount. Every uh, three days for a month. Which is why I wanted to bring this up. So all that, right, and you do find yourself in a position where I do want to talk about the system that is our criminal justice system and that prosecutes drug law and the very clear injustice that is perpetrated on a daily basis, essentially. Yeah. But first, this is a lot, and it brought you to a point where you were willing to do exactly right. that, right, and take the LSD. So what so why? happened? I mean, why? it really was yeah. desperation. I am not exaggerating when I say that it saved my life. I have a mood disorder, a cycling mood disorder, which at various times in my life has been diagnosed as bipolar, cyclothemia. But really the most accurate diagnosis was my last diagnosis, which is premenstrual dysphoric disorder. That basically means really hellish PMS, like knock down, drag out, catastrophic PMS. And the treatment, which was developed in Northern California, first at UCSF and then at Stanford by the Women's Mood and Hormone Clinic, is treatment that acts on hormones primarily because your mood is a reflection of hormones primarily. So I was treated by this psychiatrist who was trained at the clinic, and she put me on a treatment that was a week of SSRIs just before my period, the one week before my period. And it was remarkably effective. And it acts in a different way than SSRIs normally act on people's bodies. Usually when you start an SSRI, if it's going to work, it sometimes takes as much as a month to kind of amp up. But if you take an SSRI to treat PMS or PMDD, the relief is instantaneous within about 20 minutes. It's really remarkable because it acts on progestin, which is, I can't remember right now whether it's being raised or lowered, but whatever it is, it does the opposite. It's really a tremendously effective medication, and that treatment worked for me for a long time. But when you start to get older, when you're a woman and you hit your 40s, sometimes 50s, you go into a period called perimenopause. It's the period before menopause. Menopause is when you don't get your period anymore, but for like a decade before that happens, you just go kind of hormone crazy. Like, sometimes you get your period three times in one month, because that's what you need. Sometimes it's like six months and you don't get a period, and then you get like 12 in a row with a two-day break between. It's just, it's madness. And my system of mood control required that I be able to predict my periods with pinpoint accuracy. And when I couldn't do that anymore, I couldn't make this medication regimen work. 
So my doctor and I tried all sorts of other things. We tried a hormone patch, we tried various other things and nothing was working and my mood was sinking and sinking and sinking. And eventually I found myself for the first time actively suicidal. I was standing in front of the medicine cabinet in my bathroom looking and assessing its contents and I had a you know veritable pharmacopoeia I had like you know, I have four kids, they've all had their wisdom teeth out. I had all those drugs. I had drugs I'd been prescribed. I had every SSRI, every mood stabilizer you can, I'm like, I never threw anything away because I don't believe in expiration dates. So basically I just had this massive so quantity of drugs in my medicine cabinet. Plus I had the most toxic drug of all. So students answer this question, what is the most toxic drug? And it's in your medicine cabinet too. Tylenol, acetaminophen. It is the most toxic drug you have. It is the drug that you can overdose on it most easily. So like, you know, you take acetaminophen in your NyQuil and you take a couple of pills and you can end up in liver failure. So I was actually sitting there thinking, oh, I think I'll just take all this Tylenol, forget the rest of the drugs. And then I thought, no, 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 something has to give. And I had been reading about microdosing and I don't have any experience with psychedelic drugs. I took mushrooms, I think, once freshman year at Wesleyan University on a tire swing. Maybe they were mushrooms. Maybe it was like shiitakes dipped in cow manure and I got sold a bill of goods because I didn't see or hear. I just, it was like a fun tire swing. But you know, honestly, tire swings are kind of fun anyway. So who knows what I took. And I was very afraid of psychedelic drugs because the inside of my head is frankly a really scary place and I don't want to be in that any longer than I have to be. So my husband, on the other hand, had lots of experience with psychedelics and is the sanest person I know. And I started doing my research and there's all of this evidence that LSD, for example, and other psychedelics which operate in the same way, acts on the same receptors as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Those receptors, for those of you who are bio or chem majors, are 5-HTP2A. And there's all this evidence to support the fact that LSD is inversely correlated with suicidality, meaning that people who take LSD, this isn't causation, this is correlation, are less likely than similarly situated individuals to experience episodes of suicidality and to commit suicide. So all, I had all of these facts at my disposal and I was getting more and more desperate and I thought I was gonna kill myself and I have all these children and it's really bad to kill yourself if you have children. It's kind of the worst thing you can do to them. And my poor husband is very long suffering and I didn't wanna do it to him either. And I thought, screw it. If it's die or do something criminal, I'm just gonna give this thing a month. And I decided to go ahead and do it. And then the problem was where do you get the drugs? I really love the story about how you get the drugs because it sounds almost like you're already on drugs right. because it, it's totally unbelievable. Will you quickly tell sure. everybody how you get them? So not um, how you actually Berkeley, go out and get and them. And I thought like getting LSD was going to be super easy. I thought like orange sunshine was just going to rain down on my head when I walked out the door. But like if you're a middle-aged mom of four who spends her time, you know, sipping a skinny vanilla latte and yoga pants, you don't have a lot of access to drug culture. <laughs> Like, I knew people who went to Burning Man, but nobody would give me drugs. It was very challenging, and I was getting more and more frustrated. And, like, all these burners would say things to me like, when you are ready for the mother, the mother will come to you. And I'm like, I'm ready for the mother. <laughs> and she is nowhere to be found, kind of like my mother. Also something we can talk about. Anyway, uh, I met this person, and I was just basically asking everyone I met for drugs. And I met this person, and I asked 
him and he said, well, I don't have any, but I know about this microdosing thing and I heard the story once about this professor somewhere in the Bay Area, I'm not sure, he's really, really old, he's like in his 90s, he's been microdosing for decades, he, he's probably gonna die soon, maybe he has some extra. And I'm like, that is a stupid story. And then I just kept asking other people for drugs. The only people I didn't ask were my children, which is probably why I didn't get them any faster. Like, I did have like children in their late teens. One of them went to Wesleyan. So I, one day I go to my mailbox and I open up my mailbox and there's this little package and it's like adorable. It has so many stamps on it. Those really old kind before we had forever stamps, like stamp from the 80s, lots and lots of pretty stamps and my name and the return address read Lewis Carroll. And when I opened it up, there was a poem and a tiny little cobalt blue bottle filled with liquid and the instructions for use. And it said, this is diluted LSD, deposit two drops under your tongue. So I'm not a crazy person. I didn't just drink what came in the mail. (laughs) What I always tell my children whenever they leave the house is use a condom and test your molly. I have a harm reduction approach to motherhood. So I ordered a testing kit for LSD from, anybody have any guesses? Yes. I ordered my Amazon.com LSD testing kit. I tested my LSD, was satisfied that it contained what it said it contained, and nothing more toxic. And then I gave it a shot one spring morning. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Ayelet Waldman, author of A Really Good Day. that resulted from you giving it a shot. So you give it a shot for a month. Yes. That's how long this magic vial from Lewis Carroll lasted. And the book that resulted, A Really Good Day, ends up being a sort of hybrid of diary and reportage. Yes. And something that I thought was really interesting while reading it, and one gets a sense of this just from the title alone, is that what you seek is a return to normal. Right? You don't seek high. Exactly. It's not, I had the best day of my life or the most ecstatic day. It's just a really good day. Yeah. All I wanted was to like, just when I first started researching microdosing, there was a line from someone interviewed by James Fadiman, who's kind of the godfather of microdosing. He's a six, he was an LSD researcher in the 1960s, then went on to do all sorts of other things. But he said, this woman describes basically that at the end of the day, She just sort of looks back on her day and said, oh, that's a really good day. And that's, I just hadn't had that in so long. I had been, you know, virtually anhedonic for months, even years. And I just wanted to be able to say, well, I got my work done and I had some nice moments with my children and my husband and I were friendly to one another and just normal things, you know? Yeah, and these are, I think while reading it, you realize these are really quotidian desires that totally. anybody would have, right? You know, it's not like, the, you know, a lot of people microdose in Silicon Valley and what they're seeking is kind of better, stronger, faster. You know, they want to code faster. They want to achieve their peak physical performance. I just, I didn't care, you know? I mean, I just wanted to, like, not kill myself and tolerate the 24 hours that I was living with, you know, day to day with some kind of, even happiness. I'm not even so, I don't think... Happiness is the point. I think, in fact, happiness is kind of beside the point. I just wanted contentment. 
you know? Just like to experience the ebbs and flows of contentment, happiness, unhappiness with a normal intensity rather than the vicious intensity that mental illness provides. I think with pairing that search for normalcy, essentially, the discussion about the illegality around what it is that you personally are doing, but also your experience in litigation and, and law is really startling because it reorients what normalcy is, right? Where we think of normalcy, we probably don't even think of it at all, really, unless we have to, right? Unless right. we're forced to. You know, nowadays, so many, the normal is medication. I'm not going to ask all you to raise your hand, but I would be willing to bet that a lot of you are taking SSRIs or Ambien or any one of a number of medications. I mean, that's sort of the new normal in American society and actually throughout the world in many cases. Our designation of these medications as legal or illegal is really arbitrary. You know, one of the things I like to do with my students is I like to write these categories up on the board. One is drug, one is medicine, and one is food. And then we just start talking about substances and trying to figure out where they belong. And pretty soon, the divisions between those categories really, you know, they kind of disintegrate. Because like caffeine, for example. What is caffeine? Well, I mean, it's a food, right? Coffee's a food. It's also a drug. I mean, we are all, anyone who drinks coffee every morning is taking a powerful stimulant. What is, for example, cocaine? Well, we know that's a drug, right? but it's also a medicine. Bizarrely, it is in the cream they give to postpartum women to combat their hemorrhoids. Did you know that? Cocaine, hemorrhoid medication. So, I mean, all these things, they sort of drift among these categories. Gave everybody a new source. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's really the idea that this drug, LSD, which is very well studied and which is very, very safe compared to other medications. I mean. There's a, an equation that we call the LD50 of a drug, and that's the half the dose at which you die of a fatal overdose. So the LD50 of Tylenol, for example, is pretty low because you can overdose so easily. The LD50 of fentanyl, really low. The LD50 of LSD, we don't have an LD50 because we have not yet found a single verified overdose of LSD. None. All of the incidences that are reported in the literature as fatal overdoses, once they're examined, you discover that in fact the person was also taking morphine or heroin or methamphetamine or any one of another drug that most likely called the overdose or they died of a heart attack or whatever it was. There is no LD50 for LSD. You can have a really unpleasant experience taking LSD, like a really unpleasant experience, but that it's neither permanent nor fatal. I mean, there's incidents of LSD-related psychosis, but the research seems to indicate that LSD can't make a sane person psychotic. It can increase the chances of a person with predisposition towards experiencing psychosis. It can push them closer to a psychotic period or moment or experience, but it can't make a sane person crazy. And in fact, when it was first discovered in the 1930s, the first medical use of it beyond the initial laboratory was it was marketed to professionals who dealt with the mentally ill. And the idea that Sandoz, the Swiss pharmaceutical company, said in its literature was, if you take this drug, you will have insight into the subjective experience of your psychotic, schizophrenic, otherwise mentally insane, at the time we didn't say mentally ill, otherwise insane patient. 
So that's why nurses, doctors, they were taking LSD to understand what their patients were experiencing, the subjective mental state of their patients, and they weren't going crazy. In a way, it can sound like I'm rationalizing, but it actually is a rational rationalization. But also, we have crazy, crazy drug laws in this country, and the only reason I was able to engage in this experiment, and certainly the only reason that I was able to engage in it and write about it, is that I'm a very privileged person. I am white, I have a stable economic life, I live in the state of California, I have access to lots of resources and lots of professionals. If I was a young African-American man living in, say, Detroit with the same range of mental illness and need, it would be incredibly dangerous for me to try to buy illegal drugs and to take them, and certainly too dangerous for me to write about them. So the reason that I was able to do it was because I am so privileged. And the reason that I wrote the book is that I fundamentally feel like those of us who benefit every waking minute of our lives from this massive amount of privilege have an obligation to pay back a little. I'd like to get back to that in a minute. But something that I thought was really lovely about the arc of the book, I guess we won't give it away. <laughs> Not the end. I didn't die. Yeah, spoiler. And I'd like to talk about where you ended up at the end of this experiment. But to go off of your discussion of your own work, something that it seemed like happened while you were experimenting with this was that you made peace with being a writer. Yeah, it was this crazy thing. Like, I started out as, I told you, a public defender. And then I was a, sort of teaching law, and I kind of backed into writing by accident. I was out on maternity leave, and I have a short attention span for mothering-related activities. And um, I we'll ended up... We'll get back up, to that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, kids. There's really nothing I find as boring as pushing a swing in a playground. I remember being in a playground and pushing a swing and turning to this mother in the swing next to me and saying, and I swear to you this happened, oh my God, aren't you just going out of your mind? And the mother said to me, what are you talking about? I just perfected my homemade Play-Doh recipe. I've never been so happy in my life. And I was like, I need to write myself a friend because I'm lonesome. So I wrote this series of murder mysteries featuring this former federal public defender turned stay-at-home mom going slowly crazy home with her kids so she solves crime to keep from, you know, completely losing it. So that's how I started writing and then those books sold and I just kind of ended up with this accidental literary career and never went back to being a lawyer. I think right now you're even not giving yourself enough credit. Because well, probably true. <laughs> so for years people would say to me, what do you do? And I'd be like, well, I'm a maternity leave. I'm writing. And if they'd say, well, what kind of work do you do? It's like, well, I'm more of a craftsman than an artist. And But I've written a lot of books. I've written a dozen books. And my last novels are really serious novels. And they've like been well-reviewed. And they've you know, been on, they're just, they're ambitious. But I still wasn't willing to say, oh yes, I'm a writer whose work you should read. I didn't even let myself have an office. I would like work in cafes or work at the kitchen table. And my husband had this beautiful office and I took a little corner of it for myself. And then during the course of this month, I was like, wait a minute, I've been doing this for 20 years. I have all, this bookshelf is full of my books and dozens of languages. I think I get an office to write in. I think that's pretty basic, especially since we have one sitting here under the stairs that I could take over. So part of that month was, you know, 
coming to the realization that I deserved that space to write in. I thought that was such a lovely way to get back around essentially to the beginning of the book because here we are, you finally have a room of your own, right? right? Which you actually, you argue against. And you're like, no, I don't really need one. No, absolutely not. I can just, I'll be on this couch, don't yeah, mind me. Yeah, it's so me. funny, like in the first couple of chapters, I spent a lot of time like convincing myself and the reader that I don't, who needs a room of their own? What, Virginia Woolf, she didn't know anything. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out you do. And so that seemed to me like a really, a sort of a beautiful, arc that had nothing to do with family, nothing to do with mood necessarily either. It had to do really with your work, right? where you found peace in it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I really do think, I mean, I wrote the first draft of this book in the month that I was microdosing, and I think in many ways it is the book that microdosing wrote, because LSD, we think now that it, what it does in the brain is it causes different parts of your brain to communicate in novel ways parts that don't normally communicate with one another. So if you take a large dose, that's why you hallucinate, because your brain is talking to itself in all sorts of weird and wild ways. In a way, this, either metaphorically or literally, I'm not sure, this book is like that. I mean, I talk a lot about the war on drugs, and I talk a lot about my marriage, and I talk a lot about being a writer, and I talk a lot about being a mother, and I talk a lot about the history of psychedelics and the neurochemistry of psychedelics, and has all this science stuff. And I think it actually works really well, but I never would have thought before doing this, oh, I'm gonna write a book that's a memoir that's about, that's historical and scientific, and also about my mother and my kids and my husband and my work. I mean, it seems crazy, but you know, it all just kind of happened really organically and naturally. It would be great if the novel I'm writing now would happen similarly organically and naturally, but it is like, it is kicking my ass. Well, that's actually a perfect transition. Well, that's actually a perfect transition. How is it now, right? The book came out last year, 2017. Yeah. The great year of our Lord, 2017, <laughs> uh. kicked all of us in the face. And after that experiment, you know, you let go. You didn't, right. you, you stopped And if I thought I was gonna, you know, I always sort of had it, like it would hip pocketed the LSD microdosing, but you know, once Jeff Sessions was named attorney general, the most retrograde, vicious, drug phobic, racist monster of an attorney general we have had since I don't know when, my comfort level with experimenting with illegal drugs kind of vanished. But luckily, you know, there's some alternatives out there. I haven't tried it yet, but I know that if I get suicidal again, I'll, I'll give ketamine a try. It's legal. It's, um, it's a similarly, it's a psychedelic. It's much harder on the body and brain than LSD, so I won't do that happily, but I, I think I will give it a try. But I suppose, you know, because of this book, some research has started in Great Britain on specifically on microdosing. And because of Donald Trump, because... You know, the, America used to lead the way by force on issues of drug policy. We used to force the rest of the world to treat drugs the way we do. And we would impose that uh, with tariffs and with all sorts of other compelling means. But the benefit of having a tangerine-hued monster mental midget as your president is the rest of the world does not care about American leadership. And they don't care about American drug policy. And they are feeling really free to engage in all kinds of experiments with decriminalization and legalization and more rational drug policy. So everywhere from Canada, Latin America, Europe, 
Great Britain has been experimenting with psychedelics, with decriminalizing drugs generally. So lately I've been thinking that there are a lot of places that you can live that aren't the United States. So if my mood continues, as my mood spirals down, my post-Trump weight spirals up, eventually, if it gets bad enough, certainly, if and when he's reelected, I hold close the possibility that some country will legalize and actually sort of make microdosing, uh, you know, make it, give it some kind of official construct so that I could go, say, move to Portugal and microdose there. I don't speak Portuguese, but I can learn. I don't think it's that hard. I speak Spanish. Maybe if you speak Spanish with a Portuguese accent, you can make your way. I, that's that probably works in what Italy, Portuguese is. But I mean, with an Italian accent, not a Portuguese one. So, well, now that we're on the subject, actually, now that we are oh, talking Trump. about... <laughs> exactly. Um, that you were very politically active um, yes. when Obama was about to be elected, which you obviously didn't know then. But during that election cycle, essentially. Yes. Yeah. 08. 08. I'm yep. the first person ever to, issue, to utter the words Obama 08. It was long before he decided to run. It was at a dinner party that was sort of half dinner party, half fundraiser. And I went to law school with the last real president we had. So I knew him and so I was at this party and he started to talk and he was like fundraising for other senators. And I said, hey, Barack, Obama 08. And he said, shut up, I yell it. <laughs> and, um, and then the rest is history. So what is, what is your political life like these days? You know, I'm doing what we're all doing, I hope, which is resisting in all the ways I can. I find that the only times I'm not truly profoundly depressed is when I'm yelling with a sign in my hand. So, you know, at the airport or in Washington or wherever it happens to be. That's I how we found you on campus, actually. And we had to yeah, to go find me with a sign. I actually, that, that just personally, that just feels good to me. That feels, makes me feel better when I'm in a group and we're protesting. I'm really interested right now in voter registration of particularly young Latino and African-American communities. I think that's that kind of voter targeted voter registration is what we need. I have zero interest in wooing back the white Trump Democrats. I don't care. They're never coming back. I think any Democrat who voted for Trump is a lost cause, and I'm, I have no interest in expending energy wooing those people. I think that we fight the demographic fight that we can, and we register people, and we combat the voter suppression tactics. So I've been sort of focusing my energies on organizations like that. I had a Resist 53 birthday party. I mean, there's just all these things that you can do that are fun. So I just, I had all these people come to my birthday, and we set up a text. I had these people from Open Progress come and teach us how to text, and it was the night before the election in Alabama, and we sent 10,000 texts to Democratic voters in, in Alabama, helping them find their polling place and encouraging them to vote. And in a couple of cases, actually switching people so that they voted for, you know, it was surprisingly hard to convince them that maybe voting for the rapist was, you know, pedophile was a bad idea. But anyway, they did, and we won. So that was, and, and then we also raised money for, uh, to turn some seats down around here from red to blue, and that just felt great. It was easy. We had a lot of donuts and pink champagne. What could be bad? And we, you know, turned around some voters. So that's the kind of stuff I'm doing now. Um, I also, the book Kingdom of Olives and Ash is about 
the occupation of Palestine. And one of the nightmares about the Trump era is that we are so focused on this massive calamity that we are facing every minute. You know, other issues that are really important kind of get short shrift. So this is a book that my husband and I edited. We brought 24 writers to uh, Gaza and the West Bank, and we just said, write whatever you want. Write what you see, just write. And then we published this collection about um, that ended up being about what it is like to experience life under occupation. So I'm doing that. What else am I doing? I'm work doing a book, another book like this for the ACLU Centennial, where a bunch of fancy writers, including Toni Morrison and others, are writing about seminal ACLU cases to raise money for the ACLU to celebrate their centennial. They're doing amazing work right now. Um, they basically, you know, on election day, they said. President Trump see you in court, and they haven't stopped since then, so they're doing terrific work. So that's what I'm doing. That's a lot. Also, I'm like eating a lot, and I have my Trump hump, my Trump lump that I'm schlepping, my 20 pounds of Trump weight, so. What is the food that uh, most relieves Trump donuts, anxiety? Donuts, it's really all about the donut in my life. If I can, like every time something terrible happens, I stop for donuts and then go make a sign. <laughs> um, LA's a big donut town, so that is actually good advice. I know, I know. Another thing that I, that I wanted to know about what your, your thoughts were while we still have you on stage is, well, one, now that you bring up Israel-Palestine, that's something that you've been working on for a really long time, personal to you as yes, well. Yes, I'm Israeli. I was born in Israel. Something that I was wondering, was your engagement with, as a mother, um, perhaps your children's own political activities, but also what, we're, what we've been seeing in the past few days with the I kids? I am so... I am just in awe. Like, Same. I have never had any hope about gun control in this country and I actually find myself with a tiny shred, not even a shred, a shredlet of hope. Like the dynamic outrage, the absolute commitment of these kids, the incredible contagion of their activism infecting kids all the way here, you know, it's really exhilarating and exciting. I have great hope. If, I mean, you know, we will win this battle and all battles. It's just a question of whether you know, those of us who are older in this room live long enough to see it because I do believe that this is the last gasp of this vicious, horrible, misogynist, racist, American monster. And I think that, you know, watching Emma Gonzalez and the other kids has really been so inspiring for me. My daughter especially is super politically active. She's you know, leads protests and it's really, it's very, it's exciting and wonderful to see. She's really inspiring. That also brings me to a subject that, you know, I think has to come up every time anybody ever speaks with you in public or perhaps even in private, which is the infamous... Oh, my essay? <laughs> the children I don't love? The yeah. children that you don't love. Um, All those children, so many children, and yet I don't love any of them. Uh, no, I wrote this essay many years ago now, like a dozen years ago, in which I was responding to this kind of fetishization of like all these women I know who were saying things like, oh, I love my child more than anything else in the world. And all these parents who were like sleeping with their babies and they were basically some... Uh, sleeping in bed with their babies. Yes, yeah. yes. Like their bed, co you know, co-sleeping. <laughs> yeah. Ugh, gross. Um, but uh, 
basically what happened was some friends of mine were writing an anthology and they said to me, okay, you have to write about sex because you're the only person we know. We've got mothers writing about divorce and we've got mothers writing about cancer and we've got mothers writing about having twins. We have mothers writing about all sorts of things. But you're the only mother we know who's having sex. So you have to write the sex essay. So I wrote this essay that said, I'm really, it tried to really interrogate, why am I the only mother who's having sex? I have four kids, a lot more kids than anybody else. Why are we still having sex? And I, I decided that the reason we still were having sex was because unlike all the other women I knew, when I had my babies, I didn't transfer all of my passion and ardor from my husband to my children. I was still desperately in love with my husband. And I was not in love with my, with my children. I loved them, but I was not in love with them. And I said, responding to all of these mothers who said, I love my baby more than anything else in the world, I said, well, if a good mother has to love her baby more than anything else in the world, well, then I'm a bad mother because I love my husband more than I love my children. And at the time, you would have thought that I had said that I want to throw my children one by one between the, you know, underneath a freight train it, it would, the outrage was, and I'm lucky because it was in the early days of the internet, so there wasn't really much of an internet to speak of. So I, there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook, so I didn't get, you know, I didn't get quite as viciously assaulted as I would have now, but I did have people leaving, you know, notes on my front gate saying, your children should be taken away from you and I know where you live. That was fun. So yeah, how's that essay? Well, it's been, like I said, you know, a dozen years. I still like him, he's a good guy. And is your relationship to your kids changing now that they're older? Well, it's interesting. You know, I am. Um, <laughs> it's so funny. When my first, when my oldest went off to college, we were having dinner. The four of the five of us left behind, and um, when my son pulls this thing out, and it's a movie ticket from when she took him to the movies, and he's crying because he misses her so much. And I start. We were all crying, and my husband was like, "Dudes, dudes, she's not dead. She's at Wesleyan. Everybody, get it together." <laughs> You know, I, I miss them as they're growing up, but it's actually really exciting to see them become such individuals, and it's really nice that they don't need you on that daily basis as much. I mean, you know, there are evenings when my husband and I are like, let's go to the movies, and uh, it's great. We don't have to hire a babysitter, saving a lot of money in babysitting. I, I'm enjoying this period of them. I mean, ask me again in three years when the last of them leaves the house, then I'll probably be lying prostrate on my bed, sobbing hysterically. But right now I'm enjoying watching them grow up. Plus, you know, maybe by then one of them will be closer to having more of her own and I'll, you know, get that. I think the tr real truth of parenthood is you're really only in it for the grandchildren. <laughs> Before we turn it to the audience, one last question. Because, so transitioning from motherhood, and also, I should note, we're seeing a lot of books about motherhood lately, right? I mean, really? your yeah, your collection of bad or bad essays of, <laughs> of bad, essays, bad essays of about mother, bad essays, bad mother. Uh, your collection of essays, bad mother, came out now. Yeah, a dozen years ago. A dozen years ago. Ten, ten years ago. And there, yeah, there are a lot of books coming out about motherhood where it seems like you know you have the Argonauts by Maggie Nelson. Right. Rivka Galchin wrote a book called Little Labors. Yeah, yeah. Sarah Manguso. We have Sheila Hetty, I think, is publishing a book called Motherhood. So well, that's, you know, when really you're a, a writer, you write about what you're doing, and when you're a mother, you're really not doing anything else. So you're just like, what am I going to write about? I guess I'm going to write about this thing I'm doing, which is motherhood. I mean, this, my last, I thought I was going to be writing about motherhood forever, and then my, my last novel, I was just kind of over it. So there are not even any mothers in my novel. I was done with them. <laughs> um, I mean, there's one, but she's kind of a minor character. 
Well, because you were a part of that feminist wave, I think, we just have to, we'll just bring it up. What, what are your thoughts on Me Too? And then, and then we'll go over to the audience. Well, <laughs> you know, it's about fucking time. I was wondering if we could curse, actually. <laughs> I, was, I was tempted. Um, it was funny. About a, two years ago, I read this article in ProPublica and in the Marshall Project. It was a joint investigation. It was about, this, about a case of a young woman who was raped. And she did everything right. Stranger broke in, raped her, and she called the police. She did everything she was supposed to. And her foster mothers decided that they had been watching a lot of Law and & Order and they really knew what a rape victim was supposed to act like. And she wasn't acting like a rape victim. So they decided she was lying about having been raped. They didn't believe her. And they told the police they didn't believe her and the police were only too thrilled to believe that they didn't believe her. And they didn't believe her so hard that they ended up coercing a confession out of her and prosecuting her for filing a false report for her initial, for calling the police and saying she was raped. And she ended up pleading guilty to filing a false report. And in the end, she was the first victim of a serial rapist who went on to rape at least eight women, if not more. And he was brought down by these two kick-ass female police detectives in Colorado. And when they were going through his, the, his computer, they saw this picture of this young woman. He had been taking, he had took like trophy photographs and he put her driver, her learner's permit on her stomach and took a picture of her. And they called up the jurisdiction and said, we have this, we've solved your rape case with this victim's name. And they said, oh, that's not a rape case. She was a liar. And they're like, well, actually, and they sent them the photograph. And it, it just, it blew my mind. And for two years, we struggled to get that made. And I kept saying things like, I am not interested in writing a TV show about whether or not a girl is lying about being raped. I'm not interested in that question. What I'm interested in is why we don't believe women when they tell the truth about being raped. So unsurprisingly, Netflix greenlit that TV show as soon as all the news broke about Harvey Weinstein and um, Kevin Spacey at all. And now I'm really excited to have that show um, going into production. I'm also embarrassed about all the things that I let slide. You know, there's um, a couple of cases that involve people I know, and I was not surprised when the news hit that they were raping women and sexually harassing women. And if I wasn't surprised, then what the hell was I doing just letting it happen? Why didn't I do something about it? Why didn't I work harder to figure out what exactly was going on? So I'm really, I'm impressed by the bravery of the people who've come forward. I'm exhilarated that this is going on. I am not particularly concerned yet about the backlash. There are some cases that I disagree. I personally, I believe that, for example, Aziz Ansari, that does not, you know, I have a lot of problems with that, that article. I think the reporting was less than shoddy. I think the incident described does not rise remotely to the level of anything that we're talking about. But I think it does raise an, a question that we need to talk about, about like sexual contact in general and what are we entitled to in a sexual interaction and what do we want, all of us? Like what should sex be like between two equal people? So anyway, I'm, I'm thrilled. I'm also nervous because I'm by nature nervous and I am nervous that the moment will end before the change is complete, which is kind of what happened with our 
approach to the drug laws. Like during the Obama administration, we started to see a commitment to ending the worst evils of mass incarceration and revisions in the drug laws. And then that moment ended. The change wasn't, had barely begun, let alone being complete. And I fear that something might happen now. You know, in a way, I'm sort of, we can thank Donald Trump for this, right? It was all of our collective outrage about Trump that inspired this moment. So, but we still have a rapist as the president of the country. So definitely got to do something about that. What a beautiful place to end. Yes. Um. <laughs> I know, well, but end your talk with the line, we still have a rapist as the president of the United States. Um. Any questions? <laughs> You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. And now we return to the conversation with Ayelet Waldman and the Q&A from the audience. Let's turn it over to the audience. If anybody has a question, please do ask. Hi, my name is Will. Um, thank you so much for being Hi, here. I got a hilarious image in my mind of coming home from spring break and finding acid on my mom's bedside table. Um, Did that actually happen, or are you just fantasizing Fantasizing, because it? it's, it's usually the other way around uh, <laughs> for me. Um, I should hide it more, more clearly. Um, but I, I was, my, my question is sort of two-pronged. The first being, you seem pretty content, you know, as you, as you should be with some of the research um, done over the past 60 years in terms of LSD and its uh, long-term effects. Mm-hmm. Is there any research that you wish was continued or that you think there needs to be more done of or you think that so there doesn't much. need to be? And, and do you think any of that is tied into sort of a new prevalence and emergence of hallucinogens in millennials and Gen X? And are you aware of uh, HPPD or hallucinogen uh, persisting perception disorder? Thank you. Yes. I think the research on HPPD is muddy at best. But certainly, I think there needs to be more. I think there needs to be a tremendous, much more research on, is, on LSD and other similar psychedelics. Um, usually, the research happens on psilocybin because people don't really know what psilocybin is, so it's less scary. And um, it actually makes more sense to study LSD because there's this vast body of, L- of research on LSD. But the current, the attitude, the current belief is that you won't be able to get permitted to study LSD, so you can get permitted to study psilocybin. But I think I want to see, I want to know like what the long-term effects are. I would like research on the long-term effects of microdosing for personal reasons. I think we should have research on the long-term effects of regular use. And we have a very, we have a really easy way to research that because there are a lot of people who have been doing LSD since the 1960s regularly. So we can do anecdotal and self-reporting research. I also would like to know really what's going on in the brain. I mean, we have all these theories about what LSD and other psychedelics do in the brain, but I would like more information about that. I would like to know that, frankly, about SSRIs, too. I mean, I think we really need to figure out, um, you know, almost all the theories we have about how the brain works are sort of their conjectures more than anything else. I mean, you know, they, we have all these beliefs about synapses and receptors, and, but the truth is, you know, all that stuff changes from decade to decade. Suddenly your, neuroscience, your neuroscience book is completely out of date. So I would like to see a lot of research devoted to that. The problem is in this country, research is corporate-based. And um, unless there's a possible patent at the end of it, we can't get anybody to do any research. We need 
a system of government-funded research, which is why I, I think we are more likely to see that coming out of other countries than the United States. Other questions? You don't know what your mom's doing, dude. You think she's not doing anything? <laughs> Wait and see. Hi, I'm Liv. I'm a second year at Pomona. Yay. Um, so I had a question. It's interesting to me that you did this microdosing for a month and then now seemingly your thoughts of suicide and your mental health is in better order. Um, well, so microdosing only affected them. A microdosing, the effects of microdosing don't last. I think it triggered the end of that cycle for me. But it is very possible that I will cycle back. I mean, because I have a cyclical mood disorder, it's very possible that I get, and like, you know, talk to me in 2020, November 10th. So it's interesting, it's interesting to me because for a personal level, whenever, if I'm on antidepressants and if I miss a day, it's like immediately I go back to those thoughts. So it's interesting to That's me. That's interesting. It's interesting to me that you took that month and then it kind of has downgraded and then you're thinking eventually it'll cycle back. Well, I think because I wasn't classically depressed, the, my I, I didn't experience the prevalence of suicidal ideation that it sounds like you do. But the, the reactivity that you're experiencing, the daily reactivity, I, if I were you, just because, and I'm not a doctor, but I would do some, do chart, do some charting and then track and see how closely related it is to hormonal fluctuations and then email me at ielatwellman at gmail.com and we can talk more about this. Because if you're that labile, it might have as much to do with hormones as brain chemistry, which, I mean, that's what hormones are. They act on your brain. Hi, my name is Jay. Um, I enjoyed your talk a lot. Thank, Thank you. you, Jay. So I was wondering, so you had just one month where you took, uh, wait, where you? What are you guys, like prosecuting attorneys? <laughs> <laughs> so was it one, book is just about one a month? one month experiment. Or was it like a cycled schedule thing or, and, if I may. Are you trying to ask if I'm still using it? No, no, no. Jeff, well, Mr. Sessions, <laughs> take off that mask. <laughs> or what your rationale was to take once every three days. Okay, so the, like the reason day. I did the three-day cycle is that um, that's what Fadiman recommends. So the idea behind the three-day cycle is the first day you're experiencing the immediate effects of that microdose. The second day, strangely, even when you have a microdose, the positive effects continue and for me they were actually more um, noticeable because sometimes I experienced a little irritability, a little um, activity from the microdosing itself. So the next day was actually really great because I had the positive mental, the sort of positive emotional results but without the same sort of uh, activated state. And then the third day is a kind of a reset day. The third day is sort of the loser day. You're just like, oh, there you are. Um, so I think like, you know, if, if research comes out that shows that microdosing is safe in the long term and it becomes legal, then I would probably do it every two days in it's Portugal. <laughs> I say Portugal because they have decriminalized drugs and have had remarkably positive results. Hi, my name's Adam. Uh, it was strange that you chose three days, but did somebody offer that to you because there's a formula you can follow, uh, follow to find out when it will clear out of your system. Yeah, no, it's interesting because the, it, it is not, the half-life of LSD is nowhere near that. Like, that's what is so curious. Like, so 
the half-life of LSD is, I don't, I don't remember what it is, but it's nowhere near even 24 hours. So you should not be feeling those positive results on the second day. But something about that LSD molecule, it's really sticky. It, it, it's doing something, and by sticky I mean it's like staying in there and doing something even though it's, by all scientific measures, it shouldn't be. That second day effect should not be happening. And maybe it's purely placebo, but it's really marked and noticeable. And the third day really was because I was doing an experiment and I wanted to reset to baseline every cycle to make sure that I was to try. I mean, there's no way I can tell whether what I was experiencing wasn't just the mother of all placebo effects, but I felt like if I could have that reset day every three days, then I might be less, I might be able to, uh, be more confident that my results were not placebo. But of course, like technically I can't be. But you know, I don't, it doesn't matter, I just felt better. So embrace it maybe. Yeah, um, I was taking 10 micrograms. So the typical LSD dose is somewhere between 100 and 200 micrograms and I was taking 10 micrograms. I sense a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> Sorry Adam, just teasing. Were you ever tempted? At least I'm not talking about your mother. Were you ever tempted to take a couple more drops? No, because I'm really scared of hallucinating. Like, really, really scared. I feel like if anyone on this earth is going to have a bad trip, it's going to be me. You know? I mean, I can have a... I've had bad trips on edibles. Like, really bad. Like, been convinced that I was going to be the first person in the history of the world who was going to die from a marijuana overdose because I had two gummy bears. You know, I mean, and like, I mean, recently, it just happened to me recently. I've been using high CBD, low THC marijuana for pain, and the delivery dude, probably because he was stoned, <laughs> brought me the wrong thing, and the gummy was this. Like, I write about this happening once in the book, and it just happened to me again. The gummy was it was like a reverse. It was, it was like twelve milligrams of THC instead of no THC and I was out of my mind. I mean, it's so scary. And I'm sitting there talking to my husband saying, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. He's like, should I read you the chapter from your book in which you talk about how no one has ever died of marijuana? That you have to eat a ton and a half of marijuana in order to die. I'm like, but what if nobody knows? What if they attribute it to a different cause? And I, anyway, yeah. So I don't need any psychedelics in my life, in regular doses. My husband, though, used to eye that bottle a little bit covetously. Hi. Um, so, sorry, I have another legal question. Go but, for it. <laughs> um, yeah, you talked about it a little bit um, during your conversation, but I'm just curious um, just about some of the dynamics about publishing writing and then publishing about doing an illegal act. Right, it's kind yeah. of complicated. So I hired a criminal defense firm to read the manuscript and um, you cannot be prosecuted for committing a crime if the sole evidence of that crime is your book. It could say, be, it could possibly be probable cause to search your house, but you can't be, pro it, is not, it is insufficient evidence of a crime just that you wrote and said you did it. Um, there were other legal concerns that were more pressing than actual criminal prosecution. 
uh, namely um, Child Protective Services. So there have been cases where in states where marijuana is, le is legal under state law, though obviously not under federal, where people have nonetheless had their children taken away from them for use of marijuana. Um, uh, using drugs is in some states prima facie evidence of child neglect, meaning it's all you need to show child neglect is that someone took drugs. So I, I had a lot of concerns around that. And um, we minimized them as best we could. And, uh, but you know, I'm, I'm a healthy paranoid person and I spent a lot of time like thinking, oh, are they coming for me? And really like when, there were a lot of thoughts I had on election day, but one of the thoughts I had was, oh my God, I have to see if I can pull this book. And then I just thought, fuck that guy. I'm not gonna pull my book. This oh, seems... how brave. Fuck that guy seems to bring it full circle. Yes. Um, <laughs> Let's take this last one. Let's do one last question. Light. The okay. last question. What is your next novel gonna be about? Well, I don't know. It's not, this novel is like killing me. I have started and stopped and started and stopped and something to do with psychoanalysis in World War I and something to do with the Iraq War and something to do with PTSD. I don't, just don't know much more than that. The characters keep changing. Uh, it's just a disaster. You know, when you write fiction, like sometimes you just hit the gear and two weeks later you're like, wait, I wrote a book. And sometimes it's four years and you're looking at this pile of words and it makes as much sense as those proverbial monkeys tapping away at their keyboards. So I'm, I'm in monkey stage. I'll let you know if I uh, get back on the, what, what, what's in a gear? I, I rented it, my, my rental car is a Corvette, not my choice, that's what Hertz gave me, so I'll let you know if I'm in the Corvette metaphorically, as I am literally. You guys are great, thank you so much. Come talk to me thank outside you. when I'm signing books. Thank you, Scripps. You've been listening to my conversation with Ayala Waldman, author of A Really Good Day at Scripps College. I'm Medea Ocher, managing editor of the LA Review of Books, and thank you so much for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. The publishing industry is undergoing a momentous revolution, and the Los Angeles Review of Books USC Publishing Workshop can prepare you to be part of that exciting future. During an immersive five-week summer program, participants will be instructed in the varied aspects of digital and print publishing through real-world hands-on experience by our faculty and lecturers representing companies such as Red Hen Press, Time Inc., Simon & Schuster, Yale University Press, FSG, Harriet Tubman Press, University of California Press, and many other literary agents, publicists, and marketing agencies. The workshop is now accepting applications for the 2018 session, which will be held from June 24th through July 27th at the USC campus in downtown Los Angeles. For more information, including details on scholarships and other funding opportunities, please visit the workshop website at thepublishingworkshop.com. That's thepublishingworkshop.com.
You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Lyra Smith. Our researcher is Chloe Chapp. Production assistance is provided by William Broaden, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Our interns, Samson Amore, Natasha Boyd, and Joaquin Perez. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their beautiful recording studios in the heart of Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour.